When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Splash, splash, splash. Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a three-in-one formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. And its advanced beating technology keeps you seeing safely all year long. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash. Pick some up at Walmart today. Thank you for checking out the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark, and this episode embodies the reason I started this whole podcast. Not only is Ricky Miami one of the founders of one of my favorite bands, the Brian Jonestown Massacre, but he also has so many unbelievable stories to tell. We definitely go off on some tangents here, but everyone is fascinating. He talks about how he's connected to the movie Blow and the band The Tubes. He grew up with music all around him, so maybe it was inevitable that it would be his calling. From helping to found the Brian Jonestown Massacre, to making an album that was too weird for his label to release, he has done so much. He's played with another favorite band, The Black Rider. Scott Von Riper is the wonderful gentleman who introduced us. He's created a completely improvised album with Steve Kilby of The Church, and he's now a heavy hitter in the Chinese music scene. With all of this being said, I've only scratched the surface of a chat that itself only scratches the surface of Ricky Miami's career. Follow him on all the socials. Follow us at Performance ANX on Instagram and Twitter. Rate and review. And consider supporting us through ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety or performanceanx.threadless.com. And I hope you enjoy my discussion with Ricky Miami as much as I did on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. On the count of three. One, two, three. Hello, I'm Ricky Miami from Brian Jonestown Massacre, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety with Mark Shea. Does that do it? I can do it again. I can do it again. Okay, uh, just like that, right? Hello, this is Ricky Miami from the Brian Jonestown Massacre. You're listening to Performance Anxiety? Or is it Stage Anxiety? <laughs> I already forgot. It's Performance Anxiety, isn't it? Yeah, okay, all right. I should have known anyway. Third time's the charm. Hi, this is Ricky Miami from the Brian Jonestown Massacre. <laughs> massacre, massacre, massacre. Right, here we go. Now I'm wasting your time. 
I'll remember how to speak. It's maybe I should take a hit off this thing. All right. Okay. This is Ricky Mimey from the Brian Jonestown Massacre. You're listening to Performance Anxiety with Mark Shea. I've got, I've got a bit of a, a, an 80s Scottish pop uh, fixation. So yeah. it's normal to be listening to, you know, hips way around here. That's not <laughs> unusual. Or, I haven't even heard that name in ages. That's amazing. Yeah, the honey thief. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh! Hey, oh, how you doing, man? Thank you so much for, for coming on. I appreciate this. I'm okay. Yeah. Um, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Nice to see you. Of course, of course. I've just got a few distractions around here. Cats running around trying to go places they're not supposed to go. And oh, no worries, man. I got my dog's running around like a lunatic. Hey, he, you know how it is. Yeah, yeah he's okay. he's he's got something up his butt today. I, I, he's, <laughs> he, he knows you want to pay attention to something else. So probably, probably he yeah. wants to play right now. So right, he's up with. He, I think he's upstairs with my wife. Locked him in our room. I think so. <laughs> She's watching TV up there, so he's going to hang out with her. I, okay. So the way I like to go about this is kind of chronologically so i like to find out how you got into music in the first place what were you listening to as a kid uh, was there uh, a lot of music in the house what were you influenced by things like that so right. what was your first instrument so uh we can start with anything like that i mean you know was there okay. was your house big into music when you were growing up right well let's see here um when I was a kid, when I, when I, when I first started, you know, becoming a, a cognizant individual, you know, in single digit age group, <laughs> um, I, I realized that my family, um, was, it was a colorful, uh, group of people, and, um, which, you know, it, it didn't really occur to me one way or another that it, I should judge it one way or another or that, it, you know, I had no context for anything other than what it was. Right. So, so you grow up with these people who are speaking different languages and they're, you know, they look a little different from each other. There's different skin tones and different, you know, hairstyles, like hair, you know, like, like genetically. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> things like that. So, you know what? And then I realized, oh, okay. So I'm, I'm part Latino and I'm, but I'm also part not Latino. I'm part of this, this other kind of prevalent sort of thing, which is these sort of blonde haired, blue eyed people. Okay. And, um, so then I, so, you know, I'm working that out as a kid, like, okay, I'm not one or the other. I'm sort of halfway in between right. what, and what that is. My dad was, uh, a Puerto Rican Nicaraguan. And he, uh, you know, back in the 60s when he um, decided to no longer live in the jungle and have to kill iguanas for dinner, you know, literally. Because you wow. got your mom and dad saying, all right, Enrique, go into the jungle, get enough iguanas for the whole family for dinner tonight. If you don't bring back enough, we beat your ass. Whoa. And they're not joking. So it's like, you know, if, if I don't come back with enough iguanas for my brothers and my sister and mom and dad and my grandfather... They will get a switch and beat me with it until I've learned the lesson not to come back from the jungle until I've brought enough to eat for everyone. Wow. That's why people have kids. So they've got someone to go out into the jungle and get dinner for them. Right. You get tired of doing that yourself. Well, you know, you're too busy making kids, man, and <laughs> keeping that keeping the house solid and yeah. whatever it is you got to do. You know what I mean? Exactly. So make sure the banditos don't come and, and you know, 
steal your kids or your wife or whatever wow. kind of reality you're up against, whatever hand you've been dealt by. Right. However, they, um, they were smart enough. Well, they had the idea in their heads to uh, go to New York City and have their children be born there. So even though they were raised in the jungle, they held American passports. And so my father, at the tender age of 14, decided to hitchhike to San Francisco. And, you know, being a, a Latino who didn't speak a lick of English on the streets of San Francisco begging for money, he decided he was going to do whatever it took to get by in this world and not be treated like a chump. So um, got, he got very hip with whatever um, was going to make him a whole lot of money right fucking now. Uh, do you understand? Yes. So when you're that kind of guy, you're thinking outside the box. He arrived outside the box. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm going to improvise and I'm going to work this out because no one gives a fuck about me except me here. Right. Okay. That was Enrique Maimi. Okay. My dad. So what he got involved in was, you know, a lot of things, you know, they ended up making movies about the people he was working with, wow. like, you know, George Young, Blow, who played by Johnny Depp. That film is about my dad's business partner. Wow. So, right. So my dad, you know, he was doing that kind of thing down in Columbia and et cetera. And, you know, he was after poetic justice. You know, he would make money off of high rollers and he'd go, you know, like, official legitimate high rollers who had a lot to lose. Right. And he would go down and, you know, invest in Sandinista movement. Wow. None of this is on your discogs or Wikipedia page. Yeah, well, you know, it doesn't really translate to your <laughs> accolades, your accomplishments, but but it is my background. Right. The reality. I, I mean, you asked, so I'm telling you. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> don't lose the plot. Right. You know, I don't talk about this with everybody, you know, right. but I'm an honest guy. I'll just tell it like it is. So, well, I appreciate <laughs> that. So, you know, he was a guy who d did what he had to do, and it involves, you know, not just... Um, drugs, but anything. Okay. Wow. Whatever. Whatever it takes. Hey, enterprising. Sure. Let's just put these Rolls Royces onto this container and put send them down to the Philippines. Right. We, we know we know some people who are tied with the royal family, don't we? Yeah, it's all good. Wow. We'll work it out. I just need to make some money, man. You know that wow. kind of thing. Anyhow, um, so he would you know he would make money and he would he would invest in people and he would you know help his friends out. You know he was helping out. You know, a lot of people don't know. Some people do. He was helping out bands around town at the time. People like Sly and Family Stone, Flame Groovies, Tubes. Wow. He was, you know, he knew. He was cool, you know, and he didn't want anything. He just, it was, you know, it's a way to get rid of money. Right. You know, yeah. A lot of people will tell you, is, oh, you need 5000 plus? Let's take a walk, bro. I got a suitcase with your name all over it. I, I got more of this shit than I knew what to fucking do. You know, it wow. gets like that for some people. Okay? Wow. So, yeah. You know, that's hence the whole laundering money thing, you know? Yeah. You've got to fucking legitimize your shit. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole point of it. around you is enough to, you just, be, you become a bit of a philanthropist. Right. And I've, I've known quite a few people like that. Anyhow, so that's my dad. And I mentioned the tubes earlier. My uncle was in, one of my uncles was in the, the tubes. Wow. You really? may know who that is. You may not. I know. Oh, I know the band. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. Okay. White punks on dope. Yes. Yeah. Mondo bondage. Don't touch me there. You know. Talk yeah. to you later. She's beauty. Later on. Yeah. Right.
They're an actual, like, you know, they sold heaps of records. They had top 10 hits. They did the whole thing. They, they did the whole damn thing. Oh, yeah. So, um, lo and behold, what a surprise. My dad wasn't in the picture very long. And so, um, <laughs> you know, his influence was gone pretty early on. But I had Vince from the Tubes, who, even though he was a busy guy in, in a touring band all over the world and didn't have any of his own kids, he and I managed to somehow have this consistency of, of a familial relationship. You know, his wife is my mother's sister, and Vince got me a guitar. He's a keyboard player, but he got me a guitar. Oh, cool. Vince Welnick. Okay. Who was, was my uncle, uh, the keyboard player oh, for the awesome. tubes and then later Todd Rundgren and then later the Grateful Dead. Wow. So, yeah, when I was seven, he got me an electric guitar. So when was that? I was born in 72. So it must have, yeah, it was 79, 79, 80, on my birthday, September. Anyhow, um, so I, I, I took it pretty seriously. You know, I was playing guitar and um, a couple of years later, I started playing music in school. I, I was playing, I started on the recorder knowing I was going to be moving to saxophone. Oh, nice. So, yeah. So, but you have to go through this, the, the motion. So I, I right. did... I did the recorder, then I moved to clarinet, then I moved to saxophone. And then at that point, let's see, I was, um, I, I started playing saxophone in school and I also played the double bass in school. And, um, yeah, so there, there was a lot of music around, you know, my family, you know, between my dad, you know, being involved with bands, my uncle Vince being in the tubes. You know, I remember Vince coming back from tours with, you know, Yellow Magic Orchestra and Bebop Deluxe and, oh, and cool. David Bowie and Wire and Rock's Music. And he'd always have, you know, an eight-track cassette of one of those bands or, or something. You know, there was always some kind of little memento of having just been in Japan. I remember getting all the Shogun Warrior dolls from him, like the big one. He brought those back for us all one year, I remember. Wow. In the 70s and really made an impression, you know. And um, yeah, he was he was probably my first exposure, not only to a lot of great music, but also to a lot of Japanese culture, because they were quite popular in Japan and also really into the culture. Yeah. But I had another uncle, I had, excuse me, present tense, have another uncle named Ed Dorn. Ed Dorn was in a band called Zolar X. Now, Zolar X were an early 70s glitter punk band like a proto punk band. It was before punk. Okay. They were, they were like the spiders from Mars, but a, a little more high octane. Oh, wow. A, a little more, uh, it was like the spiders from Mars with a bit more New York dolls about it. And nice. a bit more kind of futurist new wave. Like they were like Devo before Devo basically. Oh, that's awesome. You can look them up. Their record is on alternative tentacles. It was released posthumously in the first part of the 21st century, but it's recorded okay. in the early 70s. Oh, wow. So my, other, my uncle Ed was in this band. And these guys 
they were playing Rodney's English disco with, you know, with the New York Dolls and with Sparks and the Stooges and the Kiss and all of these bands before anyone gave a shit about them in America, basically. Right. So um, they were part of that whole early 70s L.A. thing, even though they were San Francisco. We're all Bay Area people, ultimately. But, you know, bands got to go where they got to go. And they, yeah. at the time, L.A. was a place for a band like that. So that's where they were. Ed came back and started a band called the Aurora Push-Ups. And um, they did some singles, uh, late 70s DIY releases in San Francisco. And they were, they were a really popular band um, on the Mabuhay Gardens scene. So they would do a lot of shows with, um, I mean, they played with the Go-Go's and Romeo Void and all those kinds of bands oh, wow. you know, before they, again, before they took off. Right. So Ed was always in these bands that were, was always part of a scene sort of before it. Before it broke, blocked, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so he never it was in one of those bands that took off like that, but he was around for a lot of that. And he worked with a lot of those kinds of people and he ended up engineering Recordings for guys from the Dead Kennedys, records from the guys for the Dead Kennedys, and also did uh, True West's first record, Russ Holman's band. Oh, okay, wow. Paisley Underground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Theme. Yeah, they were like you know part of Game Theory, Rain Parade. That oh, cool. So, so you know, I'm growing up with this in my periphery with right. Ed and Vince, and of course they have their own connection, and I think the push-ups. They, the Aurora push-ups eventually just changed the push-ups. And, um, and like Zolar X, their music was compiled and released posthumously. In fact, it was done only this very year, and it was done by me. Oh, wow. I, I got the real tapes out of Ed's closet. Because all those seven inches they did back in the day go for like 80 to 100 bucks now. Oh, and you man. can't even find them. And they have like a whole other a couple albums worth of material that never was released and Jeez. you know people it's like holy grail stuff for some people certain circles you know yeah there's people who are really into this late 70s san francisco's underground scene you know and it's it's a pretty exotic thing you know in the uk and places like that and this is what my uncle from what i could tell failed to kind of understand even though he did have the foresight to you know hang on to those reels so i got the reels off his hands had him baked, had him transferred, had him remastered, found a label who does releases like that and got it released. Wow. And, and yeah. And, and that's so that's awesome. the push-ups. It's called Push-Ups is Pop on Hozak, H-O-Z-A-C records out of uh, Chicago, Illinois. And it's oh, cool. very sort of, you know, skinny tie, Beatlesque, power pop, mini moog kind of cool stuff, you know. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's great. I, I mean, I've had these songs in the back of my head since I was a little kid and no way to actually listen to them. Oh, so, so that was part of the motivation was yeah. being able to put the record on. Yeah. Finally. You know what I mean? <laughs> that is great. Yeah. You know. And there's nothing wrong with a little selfish motivation to get stuff done. 
Well, that's right. I mean, I started a record distribution company that only did underground Chinese bands because I wanted to have those records in my collection. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, we'll get to that because I... That's... Yeah, okay. I have just fallen in love with... And I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right. By who? By who, yes. Yeah. By who, you got... Yeah. Oh, man. I okay. lo- I'm in love with that band. I just found them Great. out a few days ago. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, By who... Yeah, that's that's the sort of... The culmination of, of the whole connection with China is me ending up in a band there, That's putting out a record there with them on a proper, on the biggest label in China. That's and wild. And touring China with them. We did it. You know, we've done it. God. And we're going to do it again. We, in fact, we were going to do it last year, but then, you know, you know what happened. Yeah. So, so yeah, you that, kind of get tired of saying that, don't you? You know. Yeah. Last year happened. I said it the way I said it. Yeah. <laughs> So when did you when did you start playing guitar? How did when right. from saxophone well, to guitar? Yeah, okay. So well, like I said, Vince actually got me a guitar when I was a little kid. But it was just kind of a toy guitar. It was it had proper steel strings and everything, but it was a plastic guitar. So it wasn't um, oh, wow. Wasn't, it wasn't a pro guitar. But um I thought, oh wow, guitar's kind of hard. I don't know. You know, my mom, you know, she repartnered and and, and that was good, you know, because then I had a sister. Mhm. And her father was also into music, but in a different, into a different uh, sort of avenue of things. You know, he was very into classical music. Huh. And he was very into American folk and English folk, and lots of uh, lots of different kinds of things I wouldn't have heard with the rest of my my family. So, so that really um, that really uh, opened some doors as well. You know, getting to sort of grow up hearing lots of things like, you know, uh, Chopin or Debussy and also hearing lots of things like, you know, Buffy St. Marie and Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah. You know, he's a big Tom Rush fan. And and so that was good to to have that going on in in the periphery as well. I remember, you know, going with them to see, what did we see? We saw Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson which was amazing to see as a kid. And a few years later, we went and saw Bob Dylan with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as the backing band. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you know, that was a whole other kind of dimension opened up there. Jeez, and, yeah. Um, yeah, so I got, I got in, I learned a lot about, you know, people like John Prine and David Grisman and Bob Dylan, all that kind of stuff. And, but also, you know, a lot of classical music. So um, I got into, I was, he, he had guitars around the house. He had a, a Gretsch country gentleman and he had... Um, some lovely Martin acoustics. So I was playing those quite a bit because, you know, he was, he was the kind of guy that, you know, had people around the house on the weekends and, and they'd bring their guitars with them and they'd all sort of hang around playing Simon and Garfunkel. Oh man. So, you know, so I, I was exposed to that kind of thing as a kid, as well as, you know, my groovy uncle coming back from Japan with David Bowie or whoever. And then Ed, who was, you know, into, into, you know, all the stuff he was into. He had synthesizers at home and I could go around his house and play his sequential circuits, Prophet five and his Arf Odyssey. And, you know, this was just normal, you know, wow. eight years old, nine years old. And this is <laughs> what your uncle has in his house. So you, so you go and play it, you know? Yeah. And then you ask him, what's that cool record you're playing uncle Ed? Oh, that's, uh, Bill Nelson, Flaming Desire. Oh, cool. I need to get a copy of it. Oh, I'll get you one for Christmas. Okay, great. Thanks. So this was <laughs> how, how it was as a kid. You know, you, you hear, you know, I remember hearing Depeche Mode when I was nine, hanging out at Ed's house. He's listening to Speak and Spell, their first album, when it, right when it came out. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. He's like, yeah, check it out. It's all synthesizers. Isn't that cool? 
Like, oh, that is really cool. Yeah, it's all like kind of computers, isn't it? Yeah, that's great. Cool, I have to get a copy of this. So I got a copy of it. I'm listening to it. You know, I remember going to whatever it was, fourth grade, <laughs> playing the tape to my friends in school. Like, check it out. It's all electronic, you know? And people are like, oh, that's weird. You like some band with a French name that doesn't have guitars. I'm like, well, you know, maybe, who knows? Maybe they get popular someday. And yeah. I remember by the time people are people came out, I was just, I was like, well, these guys are done. Yeah. These guys are, these guys. <laughs> They're no old news, man. Old news. Yeah, they're 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 just trying to maintain their position now. They're not hungry for it. They sold out. Yeah, there was, it was. Well, everybody knows about it now, so it's not special. Anymore. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I, I had an that experience. You know, at whatever I was twelve. <laughs> I was like, okay, uh, I'm next. I've moved yeah. on now. You know? I remember hearing, you know, oh, I'm taking a ride with my best friend. I was like, go away, yeah. please, man. We we've heard enough out of you guys. Yeah, yeah. please, next. Yeah. <laughs> but no, they kept coming back with more. Yeah, but I don't know that they've had any actual hits since that, like that big of a hit single. You know. Uh. What I mean? All right, so when did you start playing with other people? Uh, I'm assuming it was guitar at that point. Yeah, well, okay. I started playing with people when I was about 13 or 14 because I was was in high school. Here's the weird thing. Okay, I I was in junior high school, actually. It was very much like the man who fell to earth. I'm a kid from the city, and I don't know how weird that is until I'm not in the city anymore. Right, that makes sense. Right? Yeah. I'm just, I'm just me. It doesn't occur to me one way or the other. And every one of my friends is Vietnamese, Filipino, Latino, El Salvadorian, whatever. Uh, They're not from Sweden. They're not from France. You know, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's normal. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't see problem with any of that. So then I go to this place and um, everyone's white and they all look the same. And it really freaks me out. Oh, really? Well, yeah, because I'm not used to that. Uh, okay, I, I get. I'd it. never, I'd never experienced that. Wow, I never looked I, at this. I never really thought about that that way. Yeah, well, I guess a lot of people wouldn't if they didn't grow up as an inner city working class kid who's yeah. mixed race and you know a white guy named Enrique. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So, um, so that's my disposition in life, okay. right? So when I'm in a room full of you know Brads and Gavins. And Chad's, yeah. and they're all, you know, uh, ginger-haired, blue-eyed guys with, you know, backwards baseball hats and, you oh. know, you know what I mean? Yep. Um, they're all bros and... Yeah, I wasn't comfortable. And I made, but more to the point, I made them very uncomfortable because I'm not lifting a finger to fit in. Ah. In fact, in fact, if anything, um, as far as they're concerned, I've gone to great lengths to stand out. <laughs> but as I said, it was very much like the man who fell to earth. Yeah. I'm like an alien on another. I might as well have been, you know, a Martian. And I didn't know. I didn't have a problem. I didn't know. I didn't know you were. I didn't know anyone could get away with having a problem with other people till I got there. Yeah, well, because that's not your background, you know. Hey, man, if you got a problem with people who look different or speak different. In San Francisco, as a yeah. kid in the seventies, you're making problems for yourself, big time. Yeah. Okay. I learned that real quick. Yeah. So when I get, end up in an all Wonder Bread school, <laughs> I'm taking a look around. I find the one token black student. You know, yeah. Yolanda. I'm friends with her right away. Fast friends. Right. You know? 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the one person I can relate to. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, um, I ended up being friends with every other person who didn't fit in, you know, because right. they, you know, weren't on the football team or or whatever they didn't ride a horse to school or, <laughs> or no i'm not even joking about that That's really real. oh my god yeah half moon bay california man it's about 45 minutes south of san francisco the most free thinking liberal place at, the, at that point in time okay and it, it isn't now even though it trades itself as that oh, no. but um uh, anyhow i mean i grew up with you know transgender babysitters and you know yeah. People who don't speak a lick of English, the whole thing. And, yeah. my, and the whole thing was, well, they're not like everybody else, and you just have to accept them. Okay, no problem. But where does it say anywhere that everyone has to be like everybody else? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. How boring is that? Right. So, I mean, I'll, I'll get a bunch of robots that are all exactly <laughs> the same, and that'll fulfill that need. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, it's boring. Anyhow. Right. So, I ended up meeting people there who were the other misfits of society who were the other freaks and they were all in the actual high school older people so i, I this was when i began having older friends <laughs> <laughs> and and playing in bands with them and okay. you know and then you start meeting other older people who were you know i was sort of 13 14 and all my friends were sort of 17 18 they were sort of almost done with high school as wow. i was sort of just starting with it and, oh man and then i you know i was playing bands with these people and and then by the time I was 15, you know, one thing led to another and it was just time. It, it became clear that I, I no longer had time for this bullshit going on in public school. So I just moved into my, my much older girlfriend's apartment, her, and, and just <laughs> got, on, got on with my life. Wow. And played music and fooled around with people and, you know, experimented in all the ways you experiment as a young person in the city at that time in life in the early to mid 80s. Well, I guess this was getting mid to late 80s by this point. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. I want to take a minute and talk about our sponsor, Tiesta Tea. Tiesta is a tea company on a mission to create loose leaf tea beverages with premium ingredients that taste good and do good. Each tea is blended for one of five categories so you can energize, slenderize, boost antioxidants, boost immunity, and relax. My current favorite is Blueberry Wild Chow. You know, when I was growing up, my dad always told me, once you go loose, you never go bagged. And you know what? He was right. Go to tiestatea.com and use the promo code ANXIETY15 at checkout to get 15% off your order. Think you know tea? You haven't tried Tiesta tea. But, um, yeah, so I was learning who the hell I was real quick. And yeah. who I wasn't real quick. Right, okay. So, um, that's, you know, good and bad. Some people never learn. Some people have to go to a shrink for 25 years to find out that they'll never actually learn. Some people get a crash course in reality smacked in the face <laughs> and oh for sure whether they wanted to learn it or not yeah <laughs> bam here's reality bro wake your ass up okay i guess i'll wake my ass up now to my own reality of who i am hopefully so that's what's going on for me okay and so by the time i was 16 i was you know i was already traveling to europe and 
and meeting people who I'm still friends with today awesome. and, you know, work with today. It's one of them. I just got off. The, in fact, the, the message I accidentally sent you was for one of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. So there's a lot of consistency in my life, despite all the changes. Um, and it's interesting to see who is dynamic enough to really still have a place yeah. in your life as the decades roll on and the experience and responsibilities rack up. And then, you know, a lot of people fall by the wayside and it's not because you don't care. Or they don't care. It's just because paths in life mean you don't intersect anymore. This could even be someone you have a child with. Exactly. But then there's, then there's the people who, you know, you never really had considered one way or the other, whether or not you'd know them your whole life. And then you find that you did and you found for a good reason, because you could kind of honor where you were at when you met the person and still have it be totally relevant in the present moment because things are dynamic. Things are not hinged on the past. There's, they're always dealing with the now and some people that comes really naturally with, and some people that just doesn't happen at all with, That's they just true. want, they just want every time you see them, they just want to talk about that time they met you, you know, 24 years ago when you passed out on their sofa because right. you didn't have to go that night. And yeah. And they just got you trapped in Amber in this moment. Yeah. And that's and they refuse to let you have any other common ground with them than that. And then they wonder why you don't want to talk to them. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I do. Yeah. So it's interesting just to see how all that stuff plays out. But I digress. Yeah. <laughs> I got back from Europe. And shortly after, let's see, I was 16, 16 and a half. I reconnected with a, a high school mate of mine, Travis Threlkel, who I met in junior high. And he was like me. He was a, a freaky kid in a, in a situation with repartnered parents and, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So we, I guess, ma we managed to maintain a connection. So when I was living in the city, he would come to my flat and we always had this thing of, oh, hey, we got to play music together. We actually did play music together in high school and we even played a high school dance i'm just now remembering wow yeah <laughs> and, and it was one of those things where we didn't have a name and we didn't have anything we just had like a couple of riffs <laughs> that we jammed on you know what i mean but we looked really cool yeah. you know and, and that was enough you know the, the really cool looking guys are playing tonight. Okay, great. Also, I'll be there. Yeah, that was it. That'd so, been a great band name. Yeah, the really cool looking guys from uh, <laughs> from year one. Yeah, right. or from year year from the freshmen. The, freshmen. the really cool freshman guys. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. We always call them fag, but we're really just jealous of them. I mean, I, to be fair, you know, I I was coming to school looking like a member of japan oh, so wow. you know so i mean i i you know they did call me to the office for you know disrupting the entire student body you know just by my appearance oh wow these kids can't concentrate on their work because you look too far out oh my god anyhow so travis and i started playing again and sort of 1989 and right at this time i meet anton newcomb I meet Anton through a friend of mine, this guy named Arrow. Arrow was this great, this guy was so good. He was a singer-songwriter, and he, um, he never released any music. Very, oh. sorry, very sorry to say. Mm. He, this guy, I was playing with him, and he was so good. Playing with, I felt like I was playing with like Daniel Ash or something. He was, he was that kind of 
enigmatic singer songwriter player character like oh wow like you look at this guy and you're like the whole world needs to know about this guy you know he just had that thing you know what i mean sadly he took his own life oh, but wow. anyhow when i was hanging out with arrow i was like oh you gotta meet my friend travis and he was like yeah that's cool yeah we should play and then one day he said to me gee you know i i, I love that you want to play but I don't think you're really actually good enough to play with me. So I think you should meet my friend, Anton. <laughs> wow. I think you guys are actually more aligned. Oh my so gosh. He, so he introduces me to Anton and, um, I had so much respect for arrow that I just, I just said, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't hurt my feelings. It didn't, you know what I mean? It wasn't anything like that. It was yeah. just like, okay, like you're telling me this cause you know what you're talking about. It was, it was just simple. I just took it at face value. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so he, so he introduces me to Anton and the weird thing about it, I liked Anton when I met him, we, we, we played a game of chess. We had a chat in a cafe and we talked about David Sylvian and Bill Nelson, you know, really cool kind of stuff like that. Right. That's, that's actually what made me interested in him was the fact that he knew that stuff and he liked it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I wasn't impressed by people who knew the Jesus and Mary chain or knew, or knew, you know, love and rockets or knew, you know, th that was sort of, well, like, of course, you know that. Yeah. Of course, you're, of course you're into that. Everyone's into that. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, it was like a given, but once you start talking about Bill Nelson and David Sylvan, it's like, oh, okay. Oh, 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 you really do listen. Oh, okay. You really have taken Some the time <laughs> to check out what, what's really going on. Out yeah. There. You get the credibility. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, well, this is it's another level of musicality. Right. And, and, and it, it takes a, a bit of a seasoned listener to even appreciate it. So we kept in touch. But then I, you know, I introduced him to my friend Travis. And I kind of, at, at first I was thinking, oh, I don't know. Anton seems a little chaotic. Maybe he's a cool guy. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. Let's see what happens. Well, you know, Travis is still beginning. And I think actually Travis is more what he needs than me. So I kind of did what Arrow did. I was like, hey, Anton, you're going to meet my friend Travis. Okay. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, cool. And, and Travis was the same thing. He was like, yeah, whatever. I just want to play. I come back and see those guys. I don't even know what it was. 48 hours later, 72 hours later. And they're like, oh, yeah, check it out. We got this whole tape full of songs. Oh, wow. Had like a, they had like 10 songs. Oh, my gosh. And they're like, yeah, and we're just doing more. We're going to go do more right now. You want to come over and do them with us? Like, Whoa, okay. Check it out. And it's like, <laughs> you know, we got this thing going now where we do at least a song a day. And that's what was happening. It was just like a song a day. Maybe when, another song. Oh, we got two songs today. Oh, well, we got three versions of the same song today. We wrote it three different ways. Whoa. Oh, okay. Well, we, yeah, we couldn't decide which way we liked it best. So we went with all of them. Okay. <laughs> and then the next day, we forgot all about it anyways because we wrote this even better song. And this just went on for weeks. Jeez. This just went on all through 1990, into nine, all through 91, to the point where it was like, okay, well, something's happening here. So I started taking what they were doing pretty seriously. Okay. And it was just a, a situation of, here's Anton living in a flat on Haight Street with a couple guys who were really cool guys, uh, Tom and Sean, Sean Curran, who I'm doing music with now at the moment, actually. Awesome. Um, yeah. Sean lived there. I'm trying to remember if his girlfriend lived there too. I think Sean had a girlfriend living with him. Anton had a girlfriend living with him as well. Sally. 
And so it was these three guys and Sally and I think Richard. Um, Sean might have had a girlfriend who moved in or out. Anyhow, it's a long time ago. Sean was, <laughs> Sean was the guy who owned the four track and the quadriverb and the drum machine and the bass and basically everything Anton used to record all of those original demos, many of which were released as an album uh, officially only a few years ago. Another posthumous release. <laughs> Pull Pleasure Penthouse record by Brian Jonestown it right. are the demos recorded on Sean's gear. Oh, wow. In that apartment. And that was the birth of our band. So, you know, at this point, I was already playing in a band called The Tulips with a guy named Jeff Davies, who ended up in Brian Jonestown Massacre with us later. I, I sort of dragged him into it. But he already had a bit of a, a weird connection to Anton, which was a, an awkward one because uh, the, the one time they'd met previously was when Jeff found Anton, according to Jeff, trying to steal Jeff's guitar. Oh, wow. Oops. From a gig that Jeff just got off stage playing. <laughs> with a band called the Planet of the Hairdo Apes. <laughs> oh, that's a great name. Yeah. And uh, which sort of evolved into a band called Broom that I played in a version of down the track. But anyhow, okay. so, you know, you know, hey, Jeff, come play with me and my friend Anton. That guy tried to steal my guitar, man. <laughs> oh, shit okay well um well you know so what man just come play with us anyways yeah all right babe i'll be there what time are you guys gonna be oh uh, well we'll be there at eight okay i'll be there at eight which of course means you know maybe sometime after midnight right. <laughs> because you know he's on h time so uh, yeah you know yeah i'll be right out babe i just gotta go to the bathroom yeah oh god for the next three hours okay <laughs> yeah um <clears throat> anyhow uh, you know, it was Man. the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> I got, I went to the bathroom and I got distracted, babe. I got distracted. <laughs> I brought my guitar in there and my, the boom box and a few other things. And, uh, Lost track of time. Teaching myself, teaching myself how to play the cramps. <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, well, we were on about an hour ago, mate. Um, so are you done teaching yourself how to play the cramps <laughs> in the bathroom? Because the people are waiting. They might even be on the way home now. Yeah. <laughs> No exaggeration. So, um, yeah. So, anyhow, Brian Jonestown was starting. <laughs> I, I mean, I already knew Jeff was like this before I tried to drag him. I already knew it. But I, I thought maybe, you know, Jeff might take things a little more seriously because we had all this momentum, you know. Yeah. Because, you know, the songs were great and there was all this excitement. And it was really cool in the beginning because, um, you know, Anton, his girlfriend, Sally, at the time, her parents... They lived on a farm or a ranch somewhere. And um, so they had just a freezer full of organic meats and stuff, right? So so Anton, all the time, it was like, hey, why don't you come over for dinner? You know, so so it was very much like um, 
you know, he was he was really he was quite nurturing, you know, oh, wow. like any good cult leader. Yeah. He, you know, he'd have you over for a meal, home cooked meal, make you feel acknowledged and special and right. looked after. Right. It's great. So, you know, after a few months of that consistently taking place, you know, you feel you know, quite a connection <laughs> to this person, you know. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I like this guy. Yeah. You know, he writes cool songs, cooks me dinner. You know, taking what he's saying, yeah, making a lot of sense you know, to me. Who am I to you know say no to any of this? Right. Exactly. So, how did you guys come up with the name Brian Jonestown That's Massacre? Oh, okay, that was simple. I mean, yeah, it was that simple. It was <laughs> <laughs> takes acid and starts thinking of the dumbest stuff you can think of. That was the M.O. And so that's what happened. And, you know, I mean, we were you got to understand, we were inventing imaginary bands to be every other day. We were like, today we're these guys, tomorrow we're those guys. And it was just, wow. you know, imaginary band. And then and that's how you get in the mindset of, of how to make a song in a certain style. And it's very much it's not different than Joe Meek. You know, I mean, that's why. Joe Meek is a pioneer in, in the in the in, in designing the pop group, and this was kind of part of it. You know, like when you look at it, like the Tornadoes and the Outlaws and all these different groups he had, it's all the same musicians. Right? Yeah, I read Whether about that. Whether they're wearing cowboy outfits or space helmets, it's the same guys. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not about who's in the band; it's about the concept. It's about this whole aesthetic this image this place yeah you know and so that's kind of we were working in that spirit you know okay okay like, joe joe Meek was a fascinating story right it's unbelievable and a real pioneer and and is really the person who should be credited with a lot of the um things that people like george martin and phil Spector are credited with yeah because they played the game in ways that joe meek did not that's right joe joe was the trailblazer and he was also you know the amphetamine taking homosexual who would punch you in the face if yeah. you told him that what you were doing was, you know, out of studio regulation. Yeah. He Which didn't want to hear it. And the studio was like in his apartment. Well, eventually that's how he had to work because nobody would have him in yeah. their studio because he refused to wear the white smock. Yeah. Oh, he that's refused right. to follow the DB limits. He refused to be told how to do anything what to do when to do it he wasn't there to follow rules he was there to explore his vision right he was there to innovate and you know if you want to be an innovator in that world at that time you have to you know have the position to do it don't you yeah and he just he was like my dad thinking outside the box That's right. <laughs> i'm gonna work out my own way to do this thank you very much yeah yeah, and that's so that's what he did. And that's when he said, All right, forget all you people. I'm gonna rent this stupid space above above this dumb purse shop on the Holloway Road and I'm gonna piss off the neighbors and so what? I'm just stay out of my way because I'm an artist. Yeah. That was his attitude. Yep. And if you don't get it, that's your problem. Right. Yeah. Don't make that was a problem. That was truly the way he worked. It's it's just amazing. Yeah, well, that's how you have to be to get things done when you're, I mean, you got to understand, you're not going to be a guy like Joe Meek or Phil Spector or Anton Newcomb by being some guy who's dotting his I's and crossing his T's and minding his P's and Q's and that's it's not going to happen. Nope. It's just not going to happen. Sorry, it's <laughs> not. You know, maybe you'll get to be Harry Styles. Let's see where he is in, you know, however long. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, just picking his name out of a hat. Yeah. So 
you see my point. Yeah. So what a lot of people fail to understand is that um, what we define as a visionary artist is quite often um, someone who's dealing with life in a different way and has their their hand that they're dealt in life and they have to innovate and they have to, you know, improvise and they, you know, might be seen by the outside world as someone who's maybe a little difficult, maybe, you know, a little vocal, maybe a little even, hey, dare I say it, rude or insulting. Hey, man, we don't all have time to go around coddling the whole fucking world. You know, the clock is ticking. Gotta get stuff done. That's right. And, you know, I could walk, turn the corner and get hit by a bus, you know, yeah. whatever. So I don't have time to sit here and kiss your ass and apologize to you about hurting your feelings because you're so entitled or whatever. You know, people, you know, they, 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 they leave that part out. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question for you. In the, okay. So at the same time, you're starting and building up this momentum with Brian Jonestown Massacre. Yeah. Yeah. Are you in and playing with the imaginary friends at that same time? Well, no, because, well, it's a sort of yes and sort of no. Here's what happened. Here's what happened there. The Imaginary Friends was a band name. One of many band names of these imaginary bands I referenced earlier. Right. We were coming up with imaginary bands all the time, and that was one of them. Okay. And so it was always like these bands were on the shelf. Uh, I'll just be this band someday. Oh, okay. And, um... So when when Travis and I filed for divorce with the Brian Jonestown Massacre <laughs> in 1993, <laughs> and um, we had to name our child, <laughs> but we named it. Okay. As was Travis's decision. And I just said, yeah, fine, whatever. I, that sounds good to me. My only problem was the only reason we had the only reason we hadn't used it earlier, the only reason we hadn't used it earlier was because we figured it was too good to have not already been used before. Really? Ah. Which was why we ended up spelling it with a J. And then we subsequently found that nobody had ever used it before. (laughs) So when everyone else started coming along trying to use it, we're like, hey, fuck you. That's our band name. (laughs) You don't believe me? Check out our copywritten, published release on Bomb Records from 1994 and tell me we're not the first motherfuckers to use this name. Part of the one of the hardest things I, I, I've heard is to find a band name that hasn't been used. Right. Well, you know, it, it helps if you can do the research. I mean, back then we had an excuse. There was no fucking Internet. Exactly. Or let alone Discogs. Yeah. <laughs> but My a band like place. Pond or a band like the Ophelia is <laughs> like, come on, man. I'm supposed to think you're original. Give me a break. <laughs> You don't even do your research. Yeah. <laughs> That's not not a diss against those guys. They're actually my friends. <laughs> okay, but, good. But they could have done better than <laughs> start naming their band. So I'm I'm trying to figure out. Okay, so I'm I'm looking at discographies for you. So on 
Discogs. Yeah. And I'm looking at, you know, okay, so you've had the imaginary friends. There's Brian. It's a mess. I know. It, yeah. There's like a four year gap between uh, Methadrone and then a single that you did uh, split with Spectrum. Uh-huh. Um, were you just playing out and in, in various bands at that time? Or, or were you just kind of away from music between 95 no. and 99? No. Um, let's see. Here's, here's what happens. In 1993, after a lot of hard work in Brian Jones Town, not touring, mind you, but a lot of studio work, we were literally in the studio every day of our lives for an average of 12 to 18 hours a day wow. for about a year and a half. Oh my God. I'm not even joking. And we were, you know, rolling hard on LSD and E the whole time doing it. And just that we were an unstoppable unit and we were working very hard concurrently on different albums for different people in different studios. We would literally be going from one studio to another. Well, we're done working on this song today. Now we're going to go to this other studio and work on this other album we're making. Oh my gosh. It was literally like that. And, you know, and, you know, and like I say, we're, it's not like we're, you know, living healthy right. <laughs> lifestyles where we were, we were totally, uh, going for it. And so, um, you know, we were, we were on the, we were completely on the Leary diet yeah. and, um, <laughs> like no, no exaggeration. Wow. And, um, so there was a lot of pressure around that because people were spending money. People were paying for studio time and they were you know hooking us up with record labels big record labels to go have lunch meetings with and stuff and we're kids we're 20 years old yeah you know? so you're a little out of your depth and you know even though we had the advantage of people like vince and ed around and not human people who you know were on our side and had experience to draw from and perspective to lend you still are who you are and you know as experienced as you are anton was a little bit older a little more experienced and very clear on what he wanted and to be fair it was a little a miss on the rest of us at the time anton's vision for it all oh really and, and that really had a hand in it in, in making the decision to leave at the time okay because from our perspective it's like well gee you know we've been working hard we're quite young and we've got, you know, Sony taking us out to lunch. Why would we want to tell these people off or right. them? Yeah. This is why, why would we want to, you know, sort of, you know, damage this opportunity, you know? Yeah. But, you know, to Anton's credit, he really uh, sought for what it was and he just put them in, he put all these people in their place. It's wow. Like, what the hell are you going to do for my band? Our, my band can't do for itself. Wow. Why do I want to get into debt with your label? I can just go get a, a loan from a bank. I can be in debt with a bank. What's the difference? Start my own label. Then I don't have to go out to lunch with a ponytail like you. That's, see, that's a great point that, that a lot of young bands don't realize because you are getting well, into debt Including with his own bandmates. Right. Sitting there going, Shut up, man. What are you fucking doing? Leave this guy alone. Yeah. You know? He could be taking any group of clowns out to lunch yeah. right now. He's got us here. You know, come on. We don't have to just bend over and take whatever, you know, we can negotiate here. He didn't even want to negotiate with him. He was wow. just like, if you aren't giving us all of everything, f- fuck you very much. And it was <laughs> like, okay, you know, fast forward 10 years. I look back at that. I'm like, fucking right on, man. He 
way to wrestle that beast to the ground. Yeah. You know, he's a smart guy, Anton, you know. Whether you're a fan of his music or not, you can't knock the fact that he knows what he's doing, man. He does. <laughs> he really does. So there's that. Yeah. So anyhow, so we left because it, it just seemed like things, you know, from our perspective at this point in time, what we're, what we're going to say here isn't going to have much impact. And that, and that really sunk in. And we weighed that up versus, um, you know, what, where it could possibly lead and, and, and what kind of um, just sort of personal gratification there was there as a creative thinker and an artist at 20 years of age in life. Right. You know, so we felt like, okay, we're going to move on. Um, it just felt like it had ran its course at that time, you know? That's, I mean, because, that's understandable. You know, yeah, because it's something you started, you know, you didn't join this thing, you, you built this thing, Yeah, you know, and then it's three years into it and it's, and you, you know, and you're still in this time in life where, you know, and I really see this now was much more than I did then, that you're in this time of life that you're open to so much change and potential and you really want to, you know, kind of be open to, to possibilities and right. it, it felt like sticking around was not really doing that okay at, okay at, at the time you know what i mean yeah so um also you know because we had other people around who were encouraging us to to be in something that might be more reliable for us you know as as creative as our own creative force okay. you know we were we were at the time when we were making that first album for brian jonestown we were working with graham bonner from Swerve Driver. Yeah, yeah. The original drummer from Swerve Driver. And, um, you know, he had just left Swerve Driver and, you know, famously, you know, all, took a, hey, can you pull the tour bus over? I just need to get a sandwich real quick. Yeah. <laughs> right? Motorway, truck stop, whatever. Right? <laughs> and, you know, okay, well, we're going to park here. You know, because when you pull the bus over like that, it's, it's going to, it's not just going to be five or 10 minutes. It's going to be, you know, a little while. Oh, yeah. So everyone's, you know, people go and do their thing. He never came back to the bus. God. And, <laughs> and I guess, I don't know if they sat there waiting for him or if they got all halfway down the motorway before they realized it or not, but he wasn't on the bus. And from that point, it had been a fair amount of time until they would see him again. Wow. <laughs> God. You know, people come apart, right? So yeah. um, he found himself in San Francisco and I went to a concert. I went to see the faith healers, oh, nice. um, which was a, a really great two pure records band. Yeah. They were playing. And, um, after the show, I'm standing there talking to them and, uh, I look over to my right guy standing there talking to someone else in the room and I recognize him. I was like, holy shit, that's the drummer from Swerve Driver. And I knew who he was. I knew his story. I knew he wasn't in the band anymore because I had just seen Swerve Driver again without him a few weeks before. And I'm thinking, oh, man, he's got a different drummer now, and he's not quite as good, is he? Um, uh, yeah, so it was notable. And so I saw him there. I was like, wow, he leaves the band, and he ends up at a Faith Healers gig. So I go up to him, I'm like, hey, man, my name's Ricky. You're, are you Graham Bonner? Knowing, of course, who he is. Oh, yeah, mate. You know, as we're talking. Yeah. And I was a bit starstruck, you know, because I, mean, I was just a kid. And I loved that band. And um, at the time, you know, we were just about to make our record. And the 
the man paying for it, not human, from Asphodel Records, you know, rightly so, he said, you guys need a proper drummer. You know, that's cool. Your mate can play the gigs and stuff, but he's not quite, um, he's not quite up to snuff for making a proper album. Okay. So you guys need to find a proper drummer. And not had said this to us, not even a week before. And so as soon as I saw Graham, <laughs> and he was living in San Francisco. Oh, wow. I said, are you in a band? He said, no. I said, well, do you want to be in one? He said, well, not really. <laughs> but, um, what have you got going on? Because yeah, he, he didn't. He was like wanting to just be a drum and bass DJ. And he moved into a warehouse full of rave kids. Oh, my God. And he was like, his whole thing was like, taking ease and jamming to the jungle DJs on his drum kit all night long in the warehouse. We'd watch him do it. It was so badass. Oh my God. 165 BPMs just for two hours. It's like rolling so hard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, you know, 1993, you know, so, um, yeah, it's a jungle. This is all like brand new. So, you know, we're working with him. We, we get him into it. You know, he ends up making his own deal with not, you know, for payment and getting the drum kit out of the deal and all this stuff. Okay. Um, he didn't gig with us, but he, he, he did a lot of recording. After Travis and I left, I think he still kept stayed on for more sessions. But we ended up starting a band with him, and that was that band. Okay. Oh. So the funny thing there was we started the band just completely as as an afterthought, as a reaction to just the whole cathartic experience. Excuse me of um, you know moving on from that because it was it, you know those were impressionable years for us. Oh, for sure. It was, you know, even though it's looking back on it, it's a short space of time, but it didn't feel like a short space of time then. It felt like a really important part of time in our lives. And so um, Graham had had encouraged us to do something a bit more free, a bit less structured and a bit more, yeah, a bit more wild, I guess. So we we told Greg Shaw from Bump what was happening. We said, look, we we hate to let you down, but... um, we're going to try something else. And um, he said, great, I want to put it out. And we said, well, we, we don't have any songs yet, and we don't have a name yet. He said, yeah, whatever, I don't care. You guys are great. I know it's going to be good. What do you need? Tell me I want to put it out. Wow. And we were like, yeah, okay. So he paid for the whole thing and um, put it out. And weirdly, it came out before the first Brian Jones tower. <laughs> <laughs> because they were still working on it. They for another, there's a number of reasons why, but um, that happened. But um, anyhow, okay. Um, anyhow, but we weren't a band that really played shows. We did, we did do a couple of um, sort of gallery parties, warehouse parties, but nothing uh, in a proper nightclub. It was always either some, you know, uh, basement 
party kegger you know <laughs> dudes uh, you know we're playing with the sludge core bands and right. and they're you know you, you can pay two bucks if you want to come in and because they, they got to make their rent you know get the money back for this keg right uh, you know just because back then that's how it was you know oh yeah you could go see nirvana either. once upon a time you could go to a party like that and see bands like that playing you know yeah those are so, my college years too and early so we were early quite 90s. happy doing doing something like that because yeah. we knew because we knew you know we didn't we we just wanted a completely different experience than what we ended up having with brian Jonestown, which was sort of you know okay you're playing at the club paradise and you're on at 9 15 for 40 minutes and you're playing with this band that just got signed and they're having a showcase and we just didn't want to be in anything like that we wanted right. to just be like well we'll start when there's enough people here and we'll play till it we feel like we're bored and then, you know, you know what I mean? We yeah. just wanted to take the pressure off. Exactly. So, um, at the ripe old age of 21, we were burnt out. Wow. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, well, I mean, after all that recording, well, experience. Yeah. So, um, anyhow, um, after about three or four of those, Travis said, um, I got my girlfriend pregnant and she's from Ohio and I'm going to marry her. We're going to go back there. So I got to go now. Bye. And, oh my okay. gosh! So that was quite quite sudden and abrupt, and um, and that really put a, the kibosh on things. Yeah, which was which was fine. You know, I mean, we were all pretty young still. We were twenty one, and um, you know, there was there were other options. I I kind of just fooled around for a little while. Some local bands, mostly playing drums. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I was playing a lot of drums. Uh, I played with that band Broom. I told you about. Yes, I played another band called Panda with a guy uh, named Jefferson Parker, who later played in a band called The Dilettantes with Joel Keong. And um, also in that band was Carolyn Engelman, who went on to play keyboards for the Chamber Strings. Oh wow! Yeah, so you know everything's connected that's um, awesome. i'm looking at the discography and i'm seeing a bunch of different things going on like you're on a track on an album by twink and yes tipsy and yes. and it, you did an album with small stone which i really yeah. like that's a really okay. cool album Yeah, it's hard to remember everything. I'm so glad Discogs exists because I can I can reference I can find it all in one place. Oh yeah, the one <laughs> the one that I was looking for and that I couldn't. If I had to try to rem- sit here and remember it all, it wouldn't work. Anyhow, um, yeah. So let me think. So imaginary friends carried on until Travis had to go away, and uh, he he would still visit San Francisco. We did more recording. Here's the funny thing. We said, "Hey, Greg." We want to do another Imaginary Friends album, and this was in 1995. Okay. And we said, we said, um, and this time, this time we're really going to try. <laughs> 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 and he said, okay, great. Um, here's the money. Make it. Just try to try to make it a little more commercial than the last one, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and we said, yeah, no, that's what we mean. We're really going to try this time. 
<laughs> it's not going to just be a bunch of noisy feedback, bad vibe, scary, weirdo <laughs> stuff like the other one. Right. And he said, okay, great. So we make it, you know, Travis comes out. I mean, Greg gave us quite a bit of money to make it actually. And then, um, we make it and then, I, and then we send it to him and he said, he said, I thought you guys said you were going to make one that was more commercial. <laughs> And we said, well, didn't we? Isn't that what we did? And he said, no, this is even weirder. And I said, well, but we worked on it more. We took our time and tried to make it, you know, like a little more interesting. And there's more detail. Right. Said, yeah, but it's a little too far out. I'll tell you what, if you can find another label to put out, to put it out, just go ahead and do that. Okay. Oh, Wow. That's what we said. We're like, really? Oh my Shit. God. God, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Do you want your money back? No, it's okay. Just, you know, let's just pretend this never happened. Okay. <laughs> no problem. Sorry. Oh, it was very much like that. So, <laughs> but he was cool. It, and to be fair, it wasn't that he didn't like it. He actually, he said, he said, it's great. I like it, but it's just too weird for my label. Oh, wow. Too weird for Bomp Records. That's so, crazy. Yeah. So I thought, all right, well, sorry, we're so weird. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, we're not a little more traditional for you, Greg. Right. Um, <laughs> we, just, we didn't grow up listening to the Osmonds, mate. So um, I tell this story to a couple of friends of mine, being uh, Mary Hansen from Stereolab and Pete Kember, Sonic Boom from Spaceman 3. And they're like, yeah, okay, well, this is great. We can help you get it out. Okay, cool. So I'm, I'm in London. And I'm, I'm hanging out at Mary's house. She was living in this council estate in, on, um, was it Copenhagen Street? I think in King's Cross. Yeah, she she had this list of indie labels. And I remember she was helping me fill out the the, the, the envelopes, you know, oh, cool. make the tapes. She was helping me put the tapes together. Wow. Titles and, you know, she was so cool. Oh, she that's really, awesome. Yeah. Anyhow, Ma yeah, so Mary was helping me send them out. And, and Pete was telling me, you know, which some more labels to send it to. But then um, one day he said to me, he said, you know what? I don't think you should bother with any of these labels. I think you should just let me put it out on Space Age Recordings. But instead of put out the album, I'll just pick, pick a few of the tracks and we'll do it as a split EP with Spectrum. And I said, yeah, okay, that's cool. Let's do that. So that's what we did. So, so it was a few years later. It took some time because they, you know, Space Age had to, you know, they had whatever things they had to do. And, and you know, we didn't really bother. I think it took Greg, I think it took Greg a year or two to tell us he wasn't going to put it out. And then <laughs> it took another year to build up the motivation to see what could be done. And then from there, it took another year or two to, for the label who agreed to put it out to actually put it out. So, so by the time it's yeah released, it's ancient.
Oh, man. Which is, which is how things tend to go anyways, but not quite as ancient as that. Yeah. Usually when a new record is out, the band has already been sick of hearing it for the last 24 months. Right. Oh, you know, man. that's yeah. generally how things go. Wow. So um, it's not like the 60s where you put out an album every six. I mean, it, I guess for some bands it is. They're, they're just cranking it out. But, you know, <laughs> is, it, is it a quality versus quantity Thing. Exactly. See, in the sixties, when you had the Hollies and the Beatles putting out two albums a year, you knew that the, each album was going to be fantastic. Yeah, exactly. Whereas now you have these bands who are like, "Here's our sixth album this year," and yeah. you're like, "Okay, um, what differentiates sounds, this one from the other five? That yeah, it sounds here? like the first three or five. I don't even know which one I'm listening to, and I don't even know how or why to care, how I should, why I should care. You don't want to oversaturate. You really can't do it." And overdo it. I'd rather have a band put out a great one great record every couple of years than, you know, just not being able to keep up with the mediocrity. Exactly. I want <laughs> you know I, mean? I want quality, not quantity. Right. Yeah. So I saw something in the discography and I couldn't find it mm-hmm. on on Spotify or YouTube or anything. It it's the J Mod album. Oh, yeah. What is that? Because I'm yeah, okay. curious about to hear about Yeah, she's really a great artist. She hasn't really bothered to uh, keep it accessible. I should remind her. But, you know, the thing about her, Leslie Satterfield, is she, you've got, she's she's one of these creative forces of nature who is just, you know, if she's not making music, then she's welding iron or she's... Or steel, or what is he's weld, and, or, or she's, or she's, you know, taking photographs with a camera that's a hundred and fifty years old. Wow! And, and she's decided to go to Hungary to do it, and you know what I mean. She's, 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 she's literally that kind of person. That's awesome. So, so you know, she's, you know, one day she was like, "Hey, Ricky, I want to make a record with you." So I basically want you to co-produce it, and. Yeah, I want, I want to take a stab at, at what it's... I want to know what it's like to be a recording artist. Wow. Okay, cool. So so we did that. She financed the whole damn thing. And um, then it was like, okay, that's cool. Um, now I want to um, start a band that gets a, a record deal. And so she did, she did that. She started a, band, a record deal. She, Boy Scout, with a K, Boy Scout. Oh, wow. That's her band. So... Um, all girl band and she um, figured that yeah and she um she you know she's one of these people once she's done something she's kind of done it right okay yeah I know she's not really she's not really like well no i need to keep doing it she's like well no i did it and that's how it went and i'm doing something else yeah so yeah. she went from um, amongst other things, she <laughs> went from being a, a visual artist to a, a musical artist. She's done a, a bit of acting, writing, poetry. She became a, a photographer, a professional photographer, and got into this uh, niche of doing gay weddings. So, yes, yeah, so she's a pretty um, entrepreneurial thinking kind of um little force of nature that's awesome and yeah she's a self-made uh renaissance being yeah she's she's kind of beyond she's kind of past it all that, well i did that's you know. incredible i you know, yeah, I, I really like people like that yeah you know it's like the kind of people who 
you play him, you know, Sergeant Peppers, and you, know, you ask him the next day or whatever. That, oh yeah, I heard it. They don't, they, they don't feel like they need to hear it again necessarily. Yeah, yeah they, exactly. They've, already, they've, they've had that experience. Now they're doing something else, you know. But you know, the album cover of that J Mod album, she did that. Oh really? That, and yes, and it's probably about you know four or five times the size of her. I was gonna say I shouldn't be surprised to hear that. To be honest with you, yeah, she's a rather petite individual. She's got elfin magic in spades. <laughs> <laughs> Just you know, you're hanging out with her, and it's like you really feel like you've gone off with the fairies, like in the best way possible. Right. Oh. So I really love her. She's she's one of them, even though we don't speak that often. She's one of my best friends, and one of the one. Of, I've had a very um, we shared a, shared a very close relationship. That's awesome. Yeah, that is wonderful. And I'm a visual guy myself. I was a photographer professionally, and so okay. I'm always drawn to visual artists. I love I mm. love visual arts. So that I'm going to be looking out for her images for whatever she's yes. doing now too. So she's yeah, she's she's an interesting artist, and she's also one of those people who's not one to kind of talk themselves up you know like right. she's very modest and she just kind of moves on and everything's everything's just in a natural flow with her you know That's it's awesome yeah she's a proper really you know just creative kind of force it sounds like yeah i really i mean i could just sit here and go on about her so <laughs> so what brought you, yeah <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get drawn back into the brian jonestown massacre right well okay well after leaving you know it, it was a bit of a sore spot at first you know but over time we managed to uh make peace and be friends you know as we grew older and were becoming more comfortable in our own on our own path and so all along all through the time away from the band anton and i maintained a connection that grew healthier and more meaningful over time and this resulted in, you know, uh, well, I mean, it started with, you know, he would have, he would have his ups and downs. Uh, there, there was, there was the odd moment when I would, I would uh, sit in with him performing, okay, you know, in, in 1995 or 96, you know, sort of impromptu style or, or just decided on the day kind of thing. Oh, cool. So, you know, there was always a door open there. Too many mutual friends and, and shared history and, you know, all this stuff. And, yeah. And, you know, it didn't take us very long to see the value in that. Um, so so we, you know, we're, we're still very much in each other's loop. And so much so that when the band were making the Give It Back album, Anton and Matt actually rang me up from the studio from L.A. And I was in San Francisco and they, you know, they wanted to, they wanted to sort of reminisce and and you know they were saying hey we're, we're making an album right now and we're doing some of the old songs we used to play together on it and so we're nice. thinking of you and you know I ended up sort of having a great big chat with them both you know they were passing the phone back and forth you know old style yeah. right? how it used to be when you'd, you're catching up with two old friends who, who were in a room together yeah. on the phone pre-cell phone know, all that stuff yeah. yeah you know so um so that that was there. That was I think that was the first real step in um, the potential being there to, for um, coming back, because that was sort of 
that was sort of what that conversation, that was my takeaway from that conversation was maybe they would have liked me to have been there somehow. But um, a couple of years later, um, Anton actually did reach out and invited me to come to Los Angeles. And he flew me to Los Angeles in 1999. And there was discussion about playing together again. But it was bad timing because one simple reason he was, uh, how do I say he was, he was um, not taking very good care of himself. Okay. He, he was, uh, he was, he was self-sabotaging and, uh, I'll just call it self-harming. You okay. Know? Fair um, enough. Yeah. And, uh, so that wasn't going to work. Yeah. And, um, but you know, I'd seen him, bounced back from things like that before and, and I knew that he could again and even though it was it was quite um, confronting to see that at the time I still really appreciated the effort that he made and so, and so you know we, we stayed in touch and I ended up spending a lot of time in Los Angeles subsequently at that point and Jeffrey at that point was still in Brian Jonestown and in the same sort of condition as Anton. Ah, okay. And um, this was when Jeff and Jeffrey and I both ended up in a band together anyways, strangely enough, which was Smallstone. Okay. And so we're all still, you know, in each other's loop. We're all still having to figure things out about ourselves and we're still growing and going through these life changes and experiences and when, as I was in LA working with Smallstone with Jeff, Twink from The Pretty Things was living there in LA and we became friends with him. And he would get on stage with Smallstone a lot. Oh, cool. And play tambourine. And he even did some gigs as our drummer. Oh, wow. Yeah, he did. And he was quite good, actually. What else? Anton. And the singer of Smallstone were, were quite good friends, James Ambrose. Okay. And um, James ended up partnering with a girl, a woman named Mara Cagle, who is the vocalist on the song Anemone. Ah, uh, okay. So now you got James going out with a very good friend of Anton. Yeah. <laughs> playing in a band with her and two of his old bandmates. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we all end up spending a lot of time together and, you know, we're all just, we're all rooting for Anton, you know, we're all just loving him, believing in him, wanting to see him succeed, wanting to see him bounce back, wanting to see him happen the way we all knew he could and should and would and all of these things. So... Anton was writing songs and he was showing no signs of uh, losing any quality in his content. He was writing great songs. He was writing really good stuff, arguably some of the best stuff he'd ever written. Wow. At, at this point, sort of, you know, 20 years ago, 21 years ago. So he ended up putting together what was going to be the follow up to Strung Out in Heaven. And TVT didn't go for it, which I think ended up being a good thing in the end. It ended up being a bump release, but bump, I think, did pretty well with it. Oh, good. Off the back, off the back of the uh, exposure 
created through TBT with the previous album with Strung Out in Heaven. So it was time for Brian Jonestown to go on tour again. And since Smallstone had just made an album and Anton had guested on it, my uncle Vince from the Tubes had guested on it, Twink had guested on it. <laughs> um, you know, what we, it just seemed appropriate that maybe Smallstone could support Brian Jonestown on this tour. Oh, cool. So James booked a tour. He booked a tour for Brian Jonestown Massacre with his own band as the support. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, funnily enough, me and Jeff are the ex-BJM members in Smallstone, but the drummer and the bass player ended up being Anton's bass player and drummer too, because he didn't actually have a, his own rhythm section. Oh, he just, had, he just had Joel willing to tour with him because we were all going to be there together and it was going to have a, a, a good vibe and everything. Yeah. And the, band, the band had kind of fallen apart at that point. Um, Brian Jonestown. And I think the small stone connection sort of uh, set the stage for the future of the BJM in, in, a, in a weird roundabout way, you know, that's why Ma Mara coming there, me and Jeff being there. Joel coming back on the scene, you know, um, the buzz coming back around it all. So, yeah, you know, we're on tour together. And I get to <laughs> I get to play my show and then I get to sit there and watch the guys I just played with be Anton's drummer and <laughs> the player. And me and Jeff are sitting there watching it. And, of course, you know, it's only a matter of time. You know, now Jeff's on stage playing with them. Right. And I'm on stage playing with them. You know, and then it's... And then it just follows that natural progression. That's right. So, but first Jeff went back because I, I ended up joining Spectrum, Sonic Boom oh, Sp cool. from Spaceman 3. And, um, and then I ended up joining a band called Mellow Drunk. Yes. So kind of see Gregory. Yeah. She has seen angels in the street. On the nights she cannot sleep She never will apologize Sees the world through others' eyes Who actually uh, ended up doing a gig opening for Brian Jonestown as well. So, um, <laughs> so you see... I was always in, in the periphery with, you know, You're somehow. in that orbit. Yes. And, um, and always open to Anton. And, you know, leading up to this, after that tour we had done with Small Stone in 2002, it was in 2000 we did that tour. Then in 2001, I started playing with Mellow Drunk, left Small Stone, started playing with Spectrum as well. And then when I was on tour with Spectrum, I ran into Anton and Frankie in New York. Of course you did. And they came to the gig, and I think that kind of made an impression. I think when they saw that, when they, I think when they heard me playing with Pete, and they saw how well I was able to manifest that whole uh, spell that is required to be cast in a Sonic Boom concert when you're hearing songs by Spaceman 3 and... Spectrum, it has to really fucking take you there. It can't sound like some guy playing a cover. It has to sound like Richard Formby. It has to sound like Jay Spaceman. Yeah. You, have to be, you have to be able to close your fucking eyes and not 
tell the difference. So, so yeah, I think I, I think I did a pretty good job of that. And, um, I think those guys thought so too. And I kept hearing about what a good job I was doing from everybody every night. So there was a lot of positive reinforcement there. And, um, I think between showing I could go on the road and showing I could pick up a repertoire of tunes and being, you know, consistent personally as well as creatively and professionally, I think um, it made sense from Anton's perspective. Um, yeah. I think our relationship had proved, proven to be dynamic enough where we weren't sort of tripping on the past yeah. or dwelling on the past. We were always dealing with the present moment and, and working toward progress, you okay. know, and that's, that's a consistent thing with him and I through the years. So he contacted me and said, Hey, I'm down a guitar player. I'm about to go on a world tour. My, the band's first ever world tour. I've got a new label. I'm on wow. TV. And you know, what do you think? Who do you know? And I said, I'll fucking do it. <laughs> and he got back to me right away and said, really? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, gosh, we already know we can stand each other. We already know we can play together. You already know I know how to do your thing you need done. I want to go on tour with you. This is legit. We're going to earn a living. It's cool. Let's do it. Awesome. So I was quite happy to come back as an employee. Okay. I, that was that was the distinction for me. You right. know, it was, it, I, I didn't really feel like I was coming back to something so much as I was going into something that was actually something I had a hand in a long time ago and has since evolved into this thing. And I understand it because of, sure, the history, but it's not, you know, I mean, it's just Anton and all these other people. You know? Yeah. It's not, it's not Anton and Travis and... Jeff and it wasn't going back to anything really it didn't, it didn't right. feel like that for me so much, even though that's how it looks on paper. You know? Yeah. Yeah. My attitude toward it all was very different. And my, my connection to the whole thing is not what it was when I was there before. It's that a very makes, different thing. That makes sense. Yeah. I, so I don't have a sense of uh, entitlement around it. I don't feel like I'm owed anything. I don't feel it's, there's nothing like that. You know, it's like, I'm proud of my mate for keeping this thing going and making something out of it. Yeah. And, and I'm glad I get to be a part of it with him. That's cool. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. That you is know? awesome. It's, yeah. <laughs> that really is great. Yeah. 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 You you played on some really awesome albums as well. Like like one of my favorites is the Black Rider album. Okay, and yep. you know Scott Scott Von Riper was a guest not too long ago. Mm -hmm. He's the one that actually suggested I reach out to you. So I know. Yes, this He's is great. I, I I love that album. It's 
it's just got this awesome feel to it. You played with it the does. you played with the Wild Swans. The one thing I wanted to ask you about, particularly, was the project you did with Steve Kilby. Okay, the, David Neal. David Neal. Mm. That to me is just fascinating. Yeah, well, that was the idea. <laughs> That's sort of you know irresistibly kind of fascinating in this cleverly idiotic way. <laughs> you know, it's like it's so stupid, it's genius, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, did you guys? Did you come up with the idea f- and then the songs or was well, it the other way around? Oh, no, we very much came up with the idea first. Again, imaginary bands, right? Yeah. The next thing is imaginary rock stars. Think- and that's David Neal. He's this imaginary rock star from the past. <laughs> and, um, oh, you mean you'd never heard of him? Oh, right. well, where have you been? Where have you been? Yeah. That, that was kind of the angle, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you well, you thought you were so fucking hip, didn't you? And you don't even know who David Neal is. God. Jeez. Get back there with the pesh mode. Yeah, yeah. Go listen to your Alex Chilton record. <laughs> Towns fans now. Oh, you're so cool. You know, people, you know, for a while it was Lee Hazelwood. Right. Everyone would talk to you about Lee Hazelwood like they were the only person who ever brought them up to you. Oh, my you know? gosh. And then it was Fred Neal, and then it was Towns Van Zandt, and then... Alex Chilton, you know, there's always these, and they, people try to, you know, they try to co-opt it. Like, like, like he's mine. Like they discovered him. Nick Drake, he's mine. Right, right. No one else is allowed to turn you on the Nick Drake except for me. I'm the only guy who bought his record. You know, everyone, you know, there's a lot of people out there like that. Jeff Buckley was a big one with that too. Exactly. Yeah. These artists that people kind of. DFI. Yeah. So we were, we were going to, we were making up the imaginary. That is awesome. David, David Neal. It's a cross between David Bowie and Neil Young. Uh, okay. Yeah. Awesome. So, so yeah, so he's kind of got this sort of blue collar gas station thing, but he's wearing glitter socks and eyeshadow. <laughs> Platforms, you know, right. that kind of thing. Because <laughs> yeah. um, it's the 70s, you know, but it's, but he's, and he's from Saskatoon. You know, we just picked some, you know, we could have said he was from, we could have said he was from Topeka. We could have said he was from, Little Rock. We could have said he was from Norman. We could have said he was from, you know, Omaha. No, no, no. He's from Saskatoon. <laughs> you want to, you want to pick the middle of nowhere? Let's really pick the middle of nowhere. Let's like this guy's from Saskatoon, the big city, Saskatoon. You know, right? This guy's from like Podunk. <laughs> any town you know but then we realized when we toured new zealand god we should have had him be zealand man we could have had him be from invercargill oh, we blew it there man gee we really blew it that's the next one why, why canada gee what happened yeah <laughs> it was yeah. with that neil young connection yeah well yes that, that well spotted so um anyhow yeah so here's what happened there okay let me think rewind david neil yeah okay i'm in australia well, okay, I had a, sorry, rewind a little further. <laughs> no I had an Australian I had an Australian partner who is the mother of my child. She's from West Australia. So her and I, you know, we were together, we got together in the early 2000s and started spending a lot of time in Australia and I was already acquainted with the guys in the church just as a fan, you know. Yeah. But then Mellow Drunk started doing some shows with the church and uh and and the singer lead Gregory was playing with Marty. I I would play with Marty. So there was some connection there. And through this, there was sort of um, developing reasons to be spending time in Australia other than just hanging out with my girlfriend. 
So, um, so yeah, so Brian Jonestown went there in 2004 on tour. And sure enough, coincidentally, my girlfriend happened to be there at the same time anyways, because so, she went back pretty regularly. And so she was there and we had our own place uh, out in, in Bondi uh, by the beach in, okay. in the east, eastern suburbs. And the rest of the band were staying in the western suburbs. Okay. So we were staying away from the rest of the band who who i had all i had convinced them well they knew i was coming early because i wanted to see my lady and, and see my mates right and so they and so you know usually it's a bit of a monkey see monkey. oh well if you're doing it i'm gonna do it too so <laughs> so the whole band is there a week ahead of time <laughs> well he's gonna do it i'm gonna do it. oh well you're gonna do it i guess i better do it seven dwarves so um yeah so i'm there and I'm hanging out with Steve on the beach every day. It's Felicity and Steven and, and Steven's partner, Natalie, and their kids. And we're talking every day. And we're, you know, we're fooling around, chatting, and we're playing T-Rex on the guitar and stuff. And, nice. and you know, and I said to Steven, I said, you know, gee, you know, I, it would be like a dream come true to, to make music with you, mate. It really would. It would I, I just can't think of anything that would make me more happier as a guy who plays music right <laughs> and he said yeah okay well let's do it wow. so the idea was there from 2004 and you know then 2005 rolls around 2006 rolls around <laughs> and then at this point at this point i'm sitting in with them here and there oh sure. cool I'm kind of getting on stage and picking up an extra guitar or whatever here and there you know as as asked i never i never uh would impose myself on anyone in a way right. but they, they asked and i would do it so um did that a few times and then ended up going on tour with them doing that in Australia, opening for the Divinals. Oh, cool. And then, and then Stephen made a solo record called Painkiller. And Painkiller, it was a fantastic record. It was, it's as great as any great church record. And it's wow. It's uh it's just, it's really it's really gotta be heard. Painkiller. Painkiller. Right. Yeah. So so he was so proud of the record. And rightly so. And he did it with Tim, the drummer from the church, Tim Powell's. And and so they wanted to do an album launch. And they wanted to put a, together a live band to play these songs live, to play the entire album live. Oh, wow. So, awesome. so they asked me to do it. And I said, sure. And they needed, somehow we came to the conclusion we needed another guitar player. And I said, well, let me ask Scotty. Because I was uh, living at Scott and Amy's place, hanging around, you know, being in Australia and uh, making making music with them. I was playing with them, actually. I was um, doing shows with them. Oh, cool. For their album, because the album had come out and uh, they'd had a tour with uh, BRMC. Mm -hmm. So we did um, whatever it was we did. We did Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney at least those three. So I was living there and it was, it was getting to be kind of a regular thing. You know, sort of going to Australia once or twice a year and parking myself at Scott and Amy's for a month or two. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. Just, no, know, I don't. Like, I wish I did. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. This is a figure of speech. <laughs> so I would do a bit of tracking with them and then I'd get in a cab and go over to the beach and hang out with Steve and Natalie and the kids. And, and so, yeah, anyhow, so it's, Scott and I ended up playing in Steve's live band. And then um, Stephen and I, because I was always hanging out at Stephen's, 
you know, I would sort of go there during the daytimes and we'd go swimming during the day and we'd pick up the kids from school and then, you know, take them for a swim. And then we'd um, go back around his place and make dinner, smoke DMT, <laughs> listen to music and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, what ends up happening is he, he, ta- he comes up with this David Neal character and um, we're talking about it and we're sort of making up this, this story. Oh, well, it could be that he's, you know, he's from Australia, but he's from Canada, but, he, but his, his unfinished reel to reel is found at a garage sale in Australia. So we start making up all these half-baked details to his story that are intentionally not matching up. That is kind of contradictions. Like, well, some people say it was like this, and some people say it was like that. Nobody really knows the exact story, but the truth is somewhere in between all of this. So you know, you're just making all this That's stuff up. You know, awesome. he died a triple death. Um, yeah, he he OD'd on heroin as the plane crashed as the jealous lover kicked the door in and filled him full of lead. And, and it's important to that guy. And since the guy who shot him is the only survivor of the plane crash, it's really important that he can prove that David had already OD'd or he fired the first round because David, you know, he he had a thing for um rich men's wives and um I read that yeah he was he was a, a no good rat bag drug addict who um he was addicted to sleeping with wealthy men's wives it was the only thing that would turn him on <laughs> so um you know this would piss people off and this is you know what contributed to his demise his, yeah. his, tri- his trifecta what, of um one of them <laughs> yeah <laughs> but anyhow steven and i are just chilling out and we're at the car boot sale and we find this reel it says the wilderness years we put it on the tape machine <laughs> it sounds like some half-baked bullshit <laughs> this guy said yeah he, you know he, he's he's got a job as a gas station attendant he saves the money. He books the studio for the day. He gets his coworkers in there to be his rhythm section. And he's like, I'll be right back. And like Grand Bonner, he never can, never comes back. <laughs> so the album is unfinished. You know, he went out for a fucking five minute walk and he had to go meet someone real quick for something. And we never saw him again. He never returned. He never returns. Man. But that's not how he died. He died in the plane crash. Right, right. <laughs> so there's all these stories, that's, you know. That's great. I get people writing to me, I've never heard of this David Neal guy, even today. Even after we spilled the beans on that, we were just making this bullshit up. Right. People still write to me saying, I've never heard of this guy. That's amazing. Yeah, they they don't get. It's so funny. So, um, anyhow, we made that record, and you know that record is a very storied record. I don't know how deep I should go into it, but um, but it was a labor of love and a lot of drama around the entire life of that record. But the important thing is, is that record is a great record.
you know, what we did was, you know, I'd, I'd go, I'd leave Scott Namies and we could go to Stevens and we'd pick up the guitars. He had a 12 string and acoustic, uh, 12, 12 and acoustic six. Okay. So he's got, he's got a six string and a 12 string. They're both guild, lovely acoustics. And we would take turns passing them back and forth. And what we would do is like, okay, let's just come up with some riffs and we'll see. And then tomorrow night we'll come back and, and see which ones we remember. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. So we'd come up with like 10 riffs in a night. And then the next night we, we would remember maybe three or four of them. Right. And <laughs> the logic was, well, whatever ones you can't remember suck. Yeah. <clears throat> Don't worry about it. Okay, great. Cause if you can't remember it, how good could it even be? Exactly. So, right. You already forgot it. So, cause we weren't recording any of this. We were just playing. Okay. You know? Okay. And when, so we remembered certain things and it's funny cause the things we remembered from the first night, we never forgot. But even after like a week of this, we only ended up with like six things we could remember. Cause when, when it came time to actually go into the studio, <laughs> Suddenly, we couldn't remember much of anything. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, it was, and of course, I just turned up with a pick. I don't have anything. I, right. you know, I ended up playing everything. Right. I have nothing. And um, which was, I don't know, that's kind of the way it should have been and the way it was. So, um, you know, people just lending us gear and, um, and the rest of the music, we just made it up on the spot. Wow. Some of the songs. Well, first of all, all of the songs are one take, and oh, wow. some of the songs some of the songs were being made up as the take was being recorded. Oh my gosh! Oh, so, wow. yeah. Um, the ones that have piano, except for the first track on side two, are all made up on the spot. Um, and then there's another one or two that are that are like that. Yeah. Cause we only had six songs and there's how many on the album? 10. Uh, so I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, so yeah, so we're, we're literally just making it up and I'm as we're making it up, I'm playing the drums. So I say, well, why don't you just go over there and just start playing something on the piano and I'll just play a beat. Okay, cool. Yeah. And, and then just, you know, play some change. Doesn't matter. We can even add a change on later. So we're just making this stuff up, just pulling things out of the air. And then he says, well, gee, you know, I know this really great double bass player who's a jazz player and I've played with him before and I think we should get him in here. And I said, yeah, fine, get him in here because I don't want to play bass and you don't want to play bass. And so <laughs> we'll get someone else to do it. So this guy comes in with his, with his double bass and he's incredible. His name is Jonathan Zwartz with uh, starting and ending with a Z. Oh, cool. And um, Jonathan Zwartz. Zwartz. And, like Schwartz, but it's Zwartz. Yeah. And he's actually one of the most in-demand double bass players in Australia. Oh, as it wow. turns out. And so um, he came in. And I'll never forget it. He said, I'm so glad you guys asked me to come make a record with you today because my wife just had a stroke last night and I need a really good distraction. Whoa. Well, that's what we said. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? So, yeah, oh, considering what he was trying to prepare himself to be able to handle, you know, yeah. um, oh, and, and how, how, how stellar his playing was. It was just, it was totally mind blowing experience. He was, he was in and out of there in eight hours. Whoa. He'd done, he'd done the whole album. Oh, and he, if it was even that, I think 
I, I mean, I think that was including the breaks and the stopping and listening and the, I mean, he wasn't wow. playing for eight hours. He was there for eight hours. Right. And in that eight hours, he completed the whole album. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, he was amazing. And when you hear the album, it'll really stand out to you now that there's no electric bass on it. Yeah. That it's all double bass. And I think that really somehow just tied it all together and created the this illusion of of something being a lot more thought out than it was. He put way more thought into what he was playing than <laughs> anything Stephen and I had done. And um yeah. And um wow. and what was even more amazing was the following day, the guy he plays the guy who plays piano with him in their jazz trio came in and played some piano. And and the one track that isn't the one that was written on the spot with piano on it is him playing piano. That's the, that one. And I feel like he's on another one playing piano too, but I, I can't recall what track. Oh yeah, he's on Low Boy. That's right. He's, oh, so he's on two. Tra he's on two. Tra he's on two tracks. He's on Higher Than Yesterday, and he's on Low Boy. But uh, the rest of it's all Stephen playing piano and writing on piano. And we're recording it as it's being written. That's insane. And that, that would be the cockpit. And that would be Was There Ever? Was there ever talk of love in the stillness of the night? Did you ever feel like there's another one i'm just not oh yeah uh so long the song's so long okay so it was just a case of we don't have enough songs for an album well we better make them up right Let's now make them up yeah Jeez. right now not go home and do it and right. see what we get and then come back and do it tomorrow let's just do it now wow and, and it'll be done so that's what we did and um and he's like really you think it'll be good and i'm like well yeah that's how we did all the rest of it isn't it yes Hey, you know, yeah. um, so the whole thing is really off the cuff and really pulled out of the air. It, there's a lot of lightning in a bottle there on wow. that entire record um, because we didn't allow ourselves the time to labor over anything or overly develop any ideas. Right. Uh, we, we really wanted to keep it primordial and, um, you know, so it does sound like it came right out of our imagination and into your ears. It, I cannot wait to actually go back and re-listen to it now that I, I, I know a little bit more about it. Yeah. Yeah. That, and so, you know, and so a lot of it is 
just me playing drums to Stephen playing acoustic guitar. Wow. And then me going back and adding electric guitars. But okay. again, not laboring over anything, just sort of, you know, it's like if you don't catch something in the first five minutes, just move on to the next song because otherwise it's going to sound too try hard. It's going to sound too quote unquote, unquote authoritative to the yeah. point where it's a bit wooden. And it's, it's not going to sound like the concept of the, the, the album in the first place. Right. Which is sort of like a half baked or found. Yeah. Some, something found that, that nobody knew about. Right. That's right. So we, we wanted it to sound, we didn't want it slick. We Wait, wanted what, it to, we wanted raw. it to sound like something that could have been done at someone's eight track studio in 1974. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It had to have that. So yeah. that meant let it be kind of cheap and rough around the edges. Cause that's what it's going to take to create that belief right. around, it. you know, that suspension of, of disbelief to this thing of, you know, I'm hearing some guy named David Neal from 1974. We couldn't have you think about the record really give away that you weren't. Yeah. Particular, unless you were a really hardcore fan of the church. Say. Right. But even even Steve is singing in voices he'd never sang before and has since done many times. So that album really for him is a bit of a turning point because it, it showed him that he could he could kind of go into character. Right. Which okay. is he'd never something he'd never really done before. Oh wow. He'd always been him, you know, singing. And this was sometimes this was now something that required him to not be him. And part of what this idea was born out of is the same sort of notion of say, you know, something like the Dukes of Stratosphere or Tin Machine. It's or Grinderman. Oh, it's like yeah. It's like, how would this record do if it was called something else? If it was released as something else? Yeah. If someone could believe it was something else? You, you know didn't what I know mean? who was involved in it. Right. I want this to stand on its own merit. I, want, I don't want it to be compared to every other thing I've done. I don't right. want people to complain that there's no under the Milky Way on this record. Exactly. I don't want people to complain that it's not the church or see what I mean? It's like, you, you feel like, you know, because with a guy like Steven, it, there, you have this phenomenon of reaction to the being dropped from major label. It's like, well, gee, you know, everything I do is going to be, you know, in the shadow of, of the most success I've ever had. Right. I feel like my music would get more of a fair shake if it could be released anonymously or if it could be released under a different name. Yep. Maybe it'll have more of a running chance or of a fair shot. So, you know, that's where ideas like this come from, alter egos. Right, yeah. So people can hear it with fresh ears. Without and not judge it through the filter of everything else they already know about you. Exactly. And have exactly. those expectations laid onto it. Right. You know, this is a sort of um, idiosyncratic disposition for a certain kind of artist. <laughs> you know what I mean? It ain't yeah. going to happen to Elton John. No. You know what I mean? So, so it's an interesting thing to look at. Really, it it's awesome. Now I, I've kept you for like two hours now. So have you? Sorry, I'm just talking in circles, aren't I? No, no, I'm having a blast hearing these stories. Okay. I have one more thing I wanted to find out about. Uh huh. And we touched on it in the beginning, early on. Mm. How did you get involved with the bands in China? Mm. By who in particular? Because that's right. such a great album. Okay. Well, um, let's see. I spent a lot of time in Australia and a very good friend of mine there is a guy named Julian Wu and he is Chinese Australian. He took a trip in 2012 to, to China 
to visit some family. Okay. Uh, he'd never been to China before. And I think he maybe hadn't even met some of these family members. Now, Julian is a, is a very uh, well-known individual. He's a fixture on the Melbourne music scene. Okay. He, he has co-written material with the Triffids. He has, he's produced recordings for the go-betweens and Roland Howard and Spencer Jones. He's, he's, oh, wow. he's, he's a fixture of the Melbourne music scene. Okay. Anyhow, he's a good friend of mine. And, um, I stay with him normally when I'm when I'm in Melbourne. Got a key to the house and everything. Nice. So yeah. So um, so he's a good mate. And um, I went to stay with him one time in 2012. And at this time, I had arranged for another friend to come stay as well. My friend Shane from uh, his name is Shane Carter. He plays in Straight Jacket Fits and oh, Dimmer. Okay. Uh, Flying Nun Records, New Zealand. So uh, Shane was over hanging around and. Um, at this time, we're, ha we're, ha we're both staying in Julian's house. And Julian, it's like, you got to hear all this music I just got from China. Nice. Like, yeah, okay, great. Play it for us. So he's got this suitcase full of CDs. Oh, wow. He's playing all this music. And it's just one thing after another, and it's all fantastic. And it all is strangely reminiscent of flying nun bands. So I thought it was quite interesting that Shane happened to be there when this, when this was all taking place. Because he kind of agreed. He was like, well, yeah, that does sound a bit like the 3Ds. And yeah, that does sound a bit like Die, Die, Die. And that does sound a bit like, you know, it's that kind of thing. So, um, but interesting because, you know, very unlikely that any of these Chinese bands would have heard that stuff. And at the time, uh, they hadn't. Although some of them had heard Die, Die, Die. Okay. Die, Die, Die had actually toured China. But anyhow, um, so Julian's playing me all this great music. And it's blowing my mind in the same way being 18 years old hearing creation records bands for the first time was blowing my mind Wow! or being 21 years old and the way two pure records bands were blowing my mind. And it was that same experience or flying nun bands. And <laughs> it was that same kind of thing. I hadn't had that experience since the 20th century. And I'm sitting in Julian's house. He's playing all these bands and they're all on the same two labels, maybe Mars and modern sky. And it becomes quite evident. And not only that, some of these bands consist of the same people. So you have an incestuous music scene, very much like Flying Nun and, and Creation. And it's young people, same sort of thing as those labels were when they started. People who were all sort of fresh out of college. So it's this youth culture, unified music scene in the last place on earth you'd expect to find it. And that... Yeah is irresistible. So he's playing us this one record, Bird Striking. Mm -hmm. This is the band who sounds like Die, Die, Die. Or yeah. Or or whatever. Fast forward a few years, they do a split single together with the Bird Striking side produced by me. But that's another story. So anyhow, <laughs> he's playing me this record. And I'm like, I got to get a copy of this. He's like, well, it was never actually properly released because... There's copies floating around, but it's not properly released because it was too hot to handle for the Ministry of Culture in China. Wow. So they banned it from release because of sensitive lyrical content. Wow. That's what I said. 
<laughs> to my friend Anton, who had just started an indie label, A Recordings. And he said, he said, yeah, I've heard about this band, actually. I want to license that record. Oh, my gosh. So them being too hot to handle in their own country got them an international release. That's amazing. And a subsequent tour with us in the UK. <laughs> And then I booked them a North American headline tour, and then I booked them a UK headline tour. And then they were like, yeah, Ricky, we love you, mate. Why don't you come to China and produce our next record? So I say, yeah, okay, cool. Let's do that. So we do that. And I, you know, after touring all over the planet with these kids and making this record together, you know, we're pretty good mates. And um, we end up playing in a band together. Some of us, me and some of those guys. That is awesome. And that's by who? Me and members of Bird Striking. he's also lucky enough to be a, a kiwi passport holder so he's living in new zealand at the moment oh, nice. but um yeah you know i mean if you're going to sit out covid you might as well you know, go see it there. yeah but um kidding. anyhow yeah so that's that's how by who came to be was uh through the relationship of uh working with bird striking but you know that all came to be through julian julian turned me on to the music and then i found out how hard it was to get my hands on it I'm a, I'm a pretty big time record collector. I like to collect music. Yeah, um, me too. Especially, especially independent releases that are hard to come by. Oh, okay. That, that's, that's the stuff I really want to have. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really interested in $5 records. Right. I'm interested in things that you better get it now or cry forever. And that's what these releases from China are, so, the physical versions. So I, you know, being the longtime record collector I am, I know a lot of uh, record shop managers, indie stores, you know, and since I tour the world for so long now, I've gotten to know a lot of them all over the planet. Oh, I bet. And yeah. So I go into these shops on tour and, you know, before Soundcheck or whatever, and we're talking and, you know, what you've been listening to. Oh, I'm glad you asked. I've been listening to these great bands from China. In fact, I've got copies of their CDs right here in my backpack. Why don't you buy some for me and sell them in your kitchen record store in Paris, Berlin, <laughs> in Stockholm, in New York, Toronto, Melbourne, wherever wow. I happen to be talking to you at the moment, you know, Auckland. And so that's how what ended up happening. I said, hey, I want copies of these records. So why don't you send me 10 copies of each of the one I want and I'll sell the other nine and that'll pay for the 10th one for me and I'll send you the money back and we'll have a little business going. You're making money. I'm not spending money and we're getting your music out there. And you're getting the music that you want to hear. I'm filling my shelf with what I want to fill it with and all because that's what that was the whole point. I want these records. Oh, if yeah. I've got to sell 10 copies of the one I want <laughs> to have it. Fine, I'll, I'll do, do it because yep. I can. Because yeah. I know the shops that can do it, that will have it, that will, you know what I mean? So we were doing it that way. 
So it was just this DIY distribution, me in a backpack. That is amazing. You know, and then, wow. uh, well, gee, I better put this, uh, I better make a little Etsy shop. Gee, I better make a little, you know, way to order this thing on the internet without having to spend $30 on shipping from Asia. Right. Yeah. No kidding. For one CD. Right. So this one CD ends up costing you 50 or 60 bucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell you what, why don't you just FedEx me a box of a hundred of them and, you know, on spec, I'll get rid of them in a timely manner. I'll PayPal you the money back and we'll just keep this going. And then it was like, gee, you're doing a pretty good job of this. Why don't you help us book some gigs too? Okay. Wow. No problem. I can do that because I know promoters yeah. and I know bookers and I know people who can, and I know bands who, who will want to play with these bands. Yeah. And so I did it. I started booking tours for these bands and w with that label, you know, it was ran by a guy who was basically doing it as a hobby because he could afford it. So it's like, okay, it's going to cost me 60 grand to send this band, excuse me, on tour in China. Cool. How much can you make back from that, for that, of that? for me, Ricky. Well, I can book this many dates in this window of time with this visa. I can get these kind of guarantees. Looks like you're going to get 20 grand of your 60 grand back. Okay, great. Let's do it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It was like that. Jeez. So, because he's a New York finance banker who's teaching finance banking at University of Beijing. And oh, wow. he, he goes around the world doing, uh, well, up until COVID, but um, yeah. was going around the world giving, you know, sort of 90 minute seminars and, and speeches to blokes and, you know, who were billionaires trying to be trillionaires. And, Jeez. you know, so he goes and, oh, well, let me go to Switzerland and have a chat with these guys for 90 minutes. And then when I come back to Beijing next week, I'll be able to pay this 60 grand. God. Okay, cool. Nice. So that's, you know, fortunately for these bands, what? that's, that's, who's running this label who, who decided to start this label a guy who can actually afford to do it and isn't tripping on every dollar not coming back to him and he's not doing it because he wants copies of it on his shelves right. he's doing it because he's an actual <laughs> philanthropist and he's and he's seeing culture taking place all around him right before his very eyes so That's he's awesome. facilitating a way to document it and make it accessible he doesn't want to invest in a podcast does he <laughs> I don't know. Um, but um, he's a great guy, really lovely person. Oh, that's awesome. Who insisted I come to China and he made it happen. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, he, he insisted. And so I went. And you, can't, you can't refuse. Well, I, I felt bad the first time he asked, he mentioned it because I, I just didn't want to take advantage of, of the generosity. It, 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 from what I can see, there was plenty of that going on without me. Um, <laughs> Jumping on the bandwagon. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I didn't want to just be another guy with his hand out. Necessarily. Yeah. I, I felt like this, he was doing a, a great thing and he was very gracious about it. Yeah. And, yeah. and I just, you know, yeah. So I, 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 I felt like we needed a real reason for me to be there other than just, you know, just for a trip, taking advantage of someone's generosity. Exactly. So uh, eventually a couple of years down the track, there eventuated reasons to be there because we were booking tours and planning album releases and all these kinds of things, which, you know, once you get to know the artists and you're on tour with them and you're looking after them and they see how well you understand their work and appreciate what they're doing, 
don't be surprised when they say, hey, well, will you produce our next record? So that's how that ended up happening. So I ended up going over there and producing a few albums. And the most recent one is is rather notable, actually. I, I I would say it's well worth investigating. Okay. It's a band called Toe, T-O-W. Okay. And they're on Maybe Mars Records. It's a man and woman duo. The man is Luga, who's also in a fantastic band called The Molds, who you need to hear. Okay. From Beijing. But the lady, she is Yang Fan. And Yang Fan is, you might know who she is. She's a very renowned artist. From okay. the modern Beijing music world. Oh. She was in a band called Hang on the Box. Hang on the Box was an all-girl punk band. In fact, they were the first all-girl punk band from China. Oh, wow. And, and they are still going today, but she left after the first couple records. She's a founding member. And she, that band, you know, they were on the cover of Newsweek. They were touring Japan and England and America. They, they happened in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, wow. And she then went on to start another all-girl band called Ourself Beside Me, who are fantastic. That sounds familiar, I want to say. Yeah, look, look them up. They, that album caught a bit of a, caught a, caught some notoriety. Okay. All of that stuff has, has, has notoriety. But there's only one Our Self Beside Me album. Then she ended up producing a lot of great bands like Choi Wan and who else? Deadly Cradle Death. And she's done the new Dream Can album that's coming out. She's done something else. I'm trying to remember. Hot and Cold. I mean, this isn't like famous stuff, but it's very renowned stuff, particularly in China. Okay. And she is also a modern composer. She does artist residencies. She's also a visual artist. She's like Aubrey Beardsley style, but with a, an, like Aubrey Beardsley on acid. Oh, wow. You know, granny takes a trip, <laughs> Aubrey Beardsley. So, um, so she's a pretty compelling, interesting artist. She does a lot of soundtrack work for um, theater and film, for ballet production. I mean, she's like a Ryuchi Sakamoto type musician. Oh, wow. And she's 30 something years old and um yeah and so she's um so she's a legend around there and Uh i got to know her and one night she said i'm making a new record Uh, will you produce it i was shocked i was like well are you sure and she said well you're a producer right (laughs) and i said well yeah have you heard any uh, uh, that's what I said. I said, really? And she said, she said, yeah. And I said, have you heard any of my work that I've produced from around here? And she said, no, I've never heard anything you produce. And I said, well, then how do you know I'm, I'm going to be any good? And she said, well, you're a producer, right? <laughs> like, well, okay. Yeah. yeah sure. I said, well, you are too, right? And she said, yeah, I am. So yeah, all kinds of people hire you. So why are you hiring one? She said, well, I need a producer too. And I thought, okay, all right, fine. I guess I can (laughs) produce your record. I I don't see that you're going to need it, but I'll do it. Yeah. So, but as it turned out, she did need it. Um, And I'm, I'm so grateful she asked. It was such 
an amazing experience to work with someone who's such a brilliant composer and arranger and is such a diverse multi-instrumentalist kind of musician and she's very avant-garde and very traditional at the same time so oh, there's wow. nothing she can't do she can you know she can play jazz piano she can play hendrix style guitar solos oh, she can do whatever God. needs to be done she will do it and leave you speechless <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah i gotta really check something. this out yeah i mean well you're not gonna hear her hendrix style on the toe record but you, you will hear it in other things she's done in the past. She's a very fascinating artist. And wow. that record is really, really special. And I think my biggest con contribution to it really was just stopping her from developing it too far. I, I, I really liked the way she put it together in the, in the demo stages. And I felt like there was something that was going to be lost there if she developed it too far. live drums and i and i I've, that was the first thing i said no yeah. keep the drum machine <laughs> keep the drum machine because the drum machine is somehow driving the point home of the otherworldliness of it all oh cool somehow the synthetic quality is just making it like you're in a movie it's making it like you're or a dream or a you know what i mean it's got yeah. this blade runner thing almost going on oh, about it. wow yeah, so we did end up doing some organic percussion, some shakers and tambourines and things like that. It's a bit of stomping, okay. but uh, but there's no beats, there's no snare drum, there's no nothing like that. And funnily enough, the drummer for the Wild Swans is the guy doing it. Oh, doing cool! Because he just happened to be in Beijing one day. Uh, what? When we were working, and he didn't know that he was going to be playing on the record till he walked into the room. Oh my God. He didn't even know we were in there making a record <laughs> until he walked into the room. <laughs> it's so funny. I, he got a hold of me. Hey, Ricky, I'm, I'm in China. Oh, so am I. Oh, great. I'm in Beijing. Oh, so am I. Oh, cool. Wow. Amazing. He's a doctor as well. You see. Oh, wow. And he was over to give a presentation in Nanjing, but he thought he'd check out Beijing for a few days first. Okay. Cause I think he, he even said, Oh, well, I heard you say how great it was. And I always wanted to go. So I checked it out. Cause he, he'd been to Japan, you know, he's, he's really into Asia. Okay. So I said, well, I'm over at a friend's house. You should come over. You should come over and hang out with us. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. I'll stop and get a bottle of wine, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Just let me know when you're out front. I'll come get you. Okay, great. Cause it's in a hutong, you know, you will not find the entrance. You, someone has to come get you. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, it's like a little, you know, honeycomb alleys, right? Yeah. So, um, ancient like um, mongolian structures in, wow. you know in the heart of beijing so um i go out there to get him we're already having in the middle of our session i go out there to get him bring him in you know we're all oh, so good to see you you know english guy oh, you know, <laughs> very charming english gentleman Stuart. and and so as soon as we walk into the living room i say great here's the headphones here's the shaker and there's my <laughs> And he's like, excuse me. I'm like, yeah, we're making a record. So we just need you to just do some percussion. Just have a listen and you'll hear it. You'll hear where it goes. Just, it's very, very obvious. Just 
Just put a little bit of shaker on that. Yeah. Okay. Really? What are we doing? Yeah, well, we, well, this is Yang Fan. We're making her a record. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so he just didn't know. He just got dropped right into it. And I, I, knew, I, knew he'd be, I knew he'd be up for it and he'd go along with it. Oh, that is um, awesome. Yeah. That's, that's the way to do it. You know what I mean? You want to really just make it. Because if I told him, hey, we're making a record. I want you to come over here and play percussion on it. It would have just been a totally different vibe. It would have, it would have ended up being a discussion about the details, how many songs, what kind of thing. You know, yeah. I didn't want to have to. I wanted to just capture the magic. You yeah, know? yeah. So that's that's that was how I elected to, to do that. But um, yeah, anyhow, the Toe record. It's called "If I'm in Love with You," oh, and it okay. has a title track. And it's it's a wonderful song, and um, they're they're definitely one of the favorite sort of Beijing ensembles and live is really impressive. She's, she's got all these synthesizers and the guitar and she's triggering all these loops and samples and sequences and getting them all orchestrated. And it's really impressive. Oh man. I can't wait to check, to check it out. Yeah. It's great. You'll love it. I love it. Oh, Ricky, I have kept you for quite a while, but I've loved these stories. This has just been so much fun. No problem. Where where can people follow you and, and the work you're doing? Is oh, there gosh. A, are you um, on any of the social media platforms or I don't know. Um <laughs> let me think about that. Um I I mean I'm on Twitter, I'm on Face Ache, I'm on um <laughs> I'm on um I'm on WeChat. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Instagram. Instagram. Instagram's good. Um yeah. Um I guess my Instagram is more just like pictures of me and my kid or whatever, but um, <laughs> you know, Facebook, I guess, or, um, if you just Google me, <laughs> yeah. Ricky, Ricky, Miami, M-A-Y-M-I. Not too many of those around. Probably not. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. But the, as far as, uh, any latest, uh, work, that toe record's probably the most recent release, okay. um, that I've had a hand in. And then there's Michael Savage. Uh, he's an Australian artist from Perth. He's got a new single out called Right Home, which I co-produced with him. He's got an album coming out soon. co-produced and mark gardner from uh, right uh, yeah he mastered it and um nice. i'm trying to think of any other recent works or anything new to push and i think that's about it <laughs> michael's record and toe yank band's record i don't awesome. have any and then the push-ups record i was telling you about earlier oh push -up, yeah uh, called push-ups is pop and all of those are on Bandcamp. You can find all of that stuff on Bandcamp. The Toe Records on Maybe Mars, the label Bandcamp. Yes, I just looked that up. Cool. So, um, yeah, between the push-ups and Toe and Michael, I think that's a lot to um, 
sink your teeth into for 2021 slash 2022 yeah exactly that's right that's right and then um, there'll be more push-ups releases down the track here of other unreleased material and then there's another mellow drunk reissue coming next year or the year after i can't work out when we will do that and then um don't know what else Uh, some brian jonestown stuff there's a new album coming out i I did some work on oh nice and um any uh bjm tours uh, coming on yeah we're touring america starting mid-march we're doing a u.s tour with mercury rev oh awesome they were one of my favorite bands i'm a little blown away that we're doing that with them Man, hopefully come <laughs> Let to alone the... that we're going on later we're not as opposed to earlier <laughs> to me they're like a great big rock band <laughs> from my perspective um my friend uh was really impressed that you Im- interviewed the guy from um marry my hope oh james hall yeah he went on spotify just to make an account so he can hear the thing this one that we've just done <laughs> and um and he wrote back to me and said i can't believe he's interviewed that guy thank you so much i've, I've really enjoyed this this has been so much fun and, and i've got to thank scott for introducing us because it was a blast yeah scott's lovely he's so cool oh he's awesome and his, his album is awesome i love that yeah i got it i'm so into it it's great it's got that john lennon sound to it i love it yeah, I like where it goes to the whole thing. It's it's yeah. really well done. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. All right. Mark, lovely to meet you. Lovely to chat. Thank you so much. Recalling things she's done.